You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stowville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. This is the feed on 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, military might. The Canadian Armed Forces to the rescue when it came to long-term care homes during COVID-19 and the general who led the charge. A 99-year-old World War II vet who not only talks the talk but walks the walk, raising thousands for COVID-19 research. But we begin with back to school. York Region Public Health has contributed enormously to the back-to-school plans for boards in York Region. Here with more details on the framework for a safe return to class and what YRPH is prepared to do once school begins is Dr. Richard Gould, York Region's Associate Medical Officer of Health. Thanks for being with us on the feed, Doctor. You're welcome. I'm pleased to be here. So what will the return to school in York Region look like? Well, it's going to look a little different than traditionally, as you could expect. Uh, we'll be seeing, uh, in depending, different timetables, different class sizes, etc., and there'll be use of masks and social distancing. Um, some of that is not actually unique to the community because kids will be somewhat familiar with it, but they'll be seeing it in, at school, which they haven't experienced before. So it'll look a little different, for sure, but then a lot of the other portions, like the lessons and various things, will not be that uh, dissimilar uh, from what they would have normally expected. And it's, get, it's great that they can get back to in-person uh, instruction and the interaction with teachers and peers. There's been a great deal of concern on the part of parents and teachers as well and others about the return to school safely. Have you responded to that? Have you changed course at all based on some of the concerns that we are hearing in Ontario? Well, I think we're following the guidelines from the Ministry of Health uh, in particular and our, and our colleagues uh, to ensure that the information and recommendations we're providing to the school are the best possible in terms of safeguarding the health of the, uh, the, the kids and uh, the, the students as well as the uh, teachers and other staff in the school. So, um, yeah, we're, we're following those very closely, and uh, as uh, if there's any changes or improvements with that, we would certainly be communicating and sharing that with the school boards. Give me an idea of what a day-to-day uh, is like for you and the rest of the team. At this point, with school opening just around the corner, are you visiting various schools to see what the lay of the land is? Yes, it's been quite busy. Uh, lots of uh, calls uh, with the school boards and with other partners. Uh, the hospitals are actually in, uh, linked in with these calls and our partners as well, uh, Ontario Health. And yes, uh, as part of the preparations, uh, beyond all the various phone calls, and uh, there have been visits to the schools to take a look at what it looks like on site, and they've seen kind of a variety of setups. Yep, they'll be doing that, and of course, once, and I guess we'll get to it in a minute, but once we get into the school nurses and things, they'll be visiting the schools and having contact with them on a regular basis again, so that'll be ongoing. One of the big concerns that we are hearing about is class size, 
and that means there is perhaps a greater chance that there might be some spread of the virus. What are your thoughts on that, and what is the opinion of YRPH? <laughs> well, uh, we're following what's going on, um, and I guess in general, our feeling is the smaller the better, just easier for us to uh, follow up contacts. And if you have smaller groups, it's also important in terms of being able to maintain that physical distancing. So, uh, and you know, what I guess the main thing is if they can maintain the physical distancing within whatever the cohort may be, then that's the key thing. Um, and um, yeah, and, and whatever they can do in terms of, of helping that out and maintaining them. I know in, certainly in high school they're going to be definitely um, much smaller than perhaps elementary, but we'll see what happens as the um, parents decide whether they're going to opt to have their children come to school or not, and that may have an impact too on, on what the size is. And, and again, as I say, ideally the, the smaller that we can get to uh, that's, that's reasonable and can be done and, can ins- and that will help out with the, the distancing between the kids, that's the best. And mask wearing, how important is that in your opinion? Well, again, it's, it's, uh, it's an important part of it. Um, they, let's, first of all, it's that physical distancing as much as possible. The mask wearing is uh, uh, on top of that in terms of assisting that. <clears throat> we have two different groups who will be ma- have different masking instructions. Uh, the grades four and up, they all will be, it will be mandatory for them to be wearing a mask. For the under uh, grade fours, the JK to grade three, uh, because of the difficulties they may have in wearing a mask, we're recommending it strongly, um, but it's not mandatory. And we we um, recommend that the parents work with their child so the child is comfortable putting a mask on, taking it off, and storing it safely, and they don't accidentally contaminate themselves while doing that. If they feel confident and then their child is confident in doing that, then we do recommend that it would be great for that child to come with their mask um, and an extra one, too, in case they, when they have to get soiled, etc. cetera. Uh, but we don't want to make it mandatory because um, if the child is not able to cope with wearing a mask all day and taking it on and off safely, it actually could increase the risk to them more than the benefit. And we do know that in general, those younger children are less likely to get ill, uh, seriously ill, uh, and they're less likely than, say, older adults or older children um, to transmit that infection to others around them. So there, you know, the risk-benefit Situations a little bit different than the older kids, and uh, so we had to weigh the, that, that 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 difference in terms of our recommendations. So let's fast forward. School is open. Kids are in class. Teachers are there. Uh, there is staff cleaning and sanitizing. So, what will your involvement be then on a day-to-day basis? Well, our primary thing will be we'll be having the nurses that will be assigned to a group at school, and they will be answering many of the questions and issues that come up with the principal and others at the school in terms of problem solving, what may go on. Uh, and, of course, the main, one of the big things will be actually um, following up any uh, potential cases and their contacts and providing guidance and recommendation and requirements in terms of what needs to happen uh, for them so that we can prevent uh, the spread of COVID within the schools. So that will be a real uh, important uh, 
portion of what we're doing, um, as well as I say, uh, the other thing is that if there's issues around infection control and cleaning and various things, uh, we also, on a day-to-day basis, would be providing that kind of advice as well uh, to the school. So we will be basically closely working with um, our partners in the in the individual schools uh, to give them that support and information as well. As I say, we'll be following up uh, and ensuring that all possible cases, potential cases, identified cases are followed up and uh, isolated and tested as appropriate. So in my language, uh, not medical ease, uh, and you've been doing just great, thank you so far, uh, explain to me what would happen should there be a child or a teacher who is showing signs of Mm COVID-19 in the classroom. What is the protocol? Well, right now the the schools have a protocol that if a child or a, a staff becomes symptomatic, has symptoms that are uh, that are suggestive of COVID, that they would uh, say a, a staff person, they would notify the principal, they would leave, um, and we would find out. And uh, then if it's a student, uh, they would go, the teacher would inform the principal that the student would go to what we call an isolation room, and the uh, um, parent would be uh called to pick up the child to, today, to, to be taken home. And then the re- following process would be for that child to be assessed, tested, and depending on the result of the assessment and test, would either come back to school because it's not COVID-related or um, it's a case, uh, in which case then we have a whole bunch of other things that would follow up in terms of identifying who are the contacts of that particular case and then the instructions to them. Um, most likely for many of those contacts, it would be to go home um, and then uh, to be isolated for 14 days and tested if they developed any symptoms. But um, that will vary a little bit in terms of, the, of, of who's contacted and how, but public health will be providing that specific advice for every contact. So that's kind of, in general, what it'll look like. Um, as I say, they, um, the kid, nobody's going to be staying in school with symptoms um, for any length of time exposing other kids. They would be removed from that situation and go home. So who is responsible for what? A parent thinks that their child might be feeling unwell but still allows them to go to school. A teacher notices uh, a child might be ill or a teacher is not feeling well. So who's responsible for for what? Well, right on the spot, uh, well, there's two things. Uh, There is actually a screening list and various things that are provided to the parents. They have information about, uh, and they're supposed to check their child every day before sending them to school, and if they have any of the symptoms, they should not send them to school, they should stay home, and the child should be assessed and tested as appropriate, and we provide the instructions. If they do end up at school, um, say it's the the people, the person who's on site is the, the staff of the school, the principal, so they will be the primarily responsible for the follow-up in terms of ensuring that the staff person goes home and um, also, similarly, if there's a child that that child's identified goes to that, as I say, the isolation area and then is picked up and sent home with their parent. Um, we won't, I mean, because we have far fewer nurses than we do 
have schools. So we will be providing support for all this, but it might not be a situation where the nurse is in school right there. So we do depend a fair amount on the actual um, school itself and the principal and the teachers to follow through on the protocols that we provide them. And if they have any questions, um, certainly they can contact the school nurse very quickly to get any further advice or support. I have a one-line question for you, one-line answer from you. Is, (laughs) Is it safe to send our kids back to school? Yes, I would say it's quite safe. Safe as it can possibly be. Uh, I don't think, I think the risks are very controllable and reasonable. Dr. Richard Gould, York Region's Associate Medical Officer of Health, thank you for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. But health concerns not the only challenge. Online learning has been the way of the future, but now it is very much the present. Tina Cortez with that story. Athabasca University in Alberta was founded in 1970, 50 years ago, and it is the first Canadian university to specialize in distance learning. We're joined now by the university president, Dr. Neil Fasina. Dr. Fasina, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so very much for having me. Now, here in Ontario, hybrid in our high schools seems to be the way it's going to go. Most of our colleges and universities as well will be involved in online learning. How do we embrace this? Wow, that's, that's a fantastic, <laughs> uh, fantastic start. And, and I think if, if I can just step back a, a number of months, you know, when I, I think about what happened in early to mid-March where really the, the future of education arrived. Uh, and the reality was is that en masse, as, as an entire collective, we weren't quite ready for it. We knew what was possible, but now we were in a situation where we actually had to really make some very fast and very large changes. And I think, you know, when you ask how do we embrace this, I think it's an opportunity for us to take a look at how far we've made it in just six months and be able to look at the technology opportunities, the quality opportunities, and, and the student experience opportunities, and actually be able to, to say, okay, you know what, we got some of them bang on. We, sure, we, we messed a couple of them up, but let's, let's take this opportunity to actually create something that we really knew was, was coming down the pike anyway. So let's take this step by step. For the teacher who perhaps is unfamiliar with teaching online or distance learning. What advice do you have for them? Oh, and this is a great one. And, and the best advice I can, I can give is reach out. Find those resources, and if, if you're looking for them, head to athabascau.ca around what it means and what is different about teaching online versus teaching in person. And again, this is where I, I, my hat is tipped to all the teachers, whether or not you're in, in the K-12 system or in the higher education system, there is a whole different approach to bringing an interactive and exciting learning opportunity to students in an online environment than there is in a in-person class, right? It, new technologies, new approaches, new, new strategies, and, and really it's about becoming familiar with the way an online learner expects to learn because that, that learner is actually going to approach it differently than if they were in an in-person classroom. So best advice, reach out, find those resources around the, the, the similarities and the differences about in-person versus online teaching. 
I think that's a really valuable point. It's you shouldn't be hesitant or afraid to reach out to ask those questions so that you can improve that experience for yourself and your students. I couldn't agree more. And an, an example I've been using in, in trying to to show people just you know how big of a change this might be for our teachers is is comparing uh, live theater to a, a 3D animated movie that would come out of a you know Hollywood production studio. Both of the end products are incredibly, you know, entertaining for the audience. But if, if you tried to take a live theater production team and have them create a 3D animated movie, it's not going to end up producing the result you're hoping for. And similarly, if you took a 3D animation team and tried to have them do live theater, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to work out well as well. So nevertheless, you know, the, the, like I said, the end, the end experience for the audience is exciting on both sides, but there's a all different skill set that goes into creating that experience. And, and really, we shouldn't be embarrassed about the fact that this is new to us as teachers uh, because it's not necessarily something that we were trained in. It's not necessarily something that we're familiar with. All right, let's move on to parents. What's your advice to them? How do they ensure that their child is learning and benefiting from the online experience? So there's a couple of different pieces that I would uh, toss in here is, is number one, make sure that the communication is as strong as it, it possibly can be. And that is from parent to, to child or parent to student, parent to teacher, uh, or, or parent to, uh, to, to school administrator, just so that the, the parents and the, the students are all kind of on the same page with the teachers. Again, in so many cases, other than the people that have been doing this for a while, this is truly new. Uh, so it's about making sure that we're checking in with our kids in, in terms of not only, you know, their, their learning experience, but where their, uh, you know, their mental fitness is uh, and, and just making sure that they are comfortable. The second piece I would recommend is, is help your child set up for success. You know, so when we think of uh, an in-person classroom, we often you know, will put our, our child onto a bus and they, they, they head to a school and there's a routine, there's a structure. And, and really, you know, the, some of our, our kids are going to be looking for that structure. It just it might be happening at home now. So it's about setting up uh, a proper spot for them to be able to to focus. Uh, it's about setting up proper routines so that they're engaging it at, at certain times of the day. And it's about setting up the opportunity to make sure that our, our, our kids aren't without that that social interaction with their peers that they might get when they're in a in a in person environment. So it's 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 about trying to mimic some of those things that they might get otherwise. But as parents we, we now get to step up and, and kind of do it from the home. And what should students then be doing, whether they're at the elementary level, high school, or post-secondary level? What should they be doing to make sure they're staying on track? Hmm. So again, this is this is where I'm going to uh, come back to that that communication piece. It, it is definitely about making sure that they are reaching out. And and one of the things that I'll say in, in different environments is just because you're learning online doesn't mean you're learning alone. And that's an important distinction to make. So if, if as a student, uh, especially in, in sort of the, the later years where, where your mind starts to think through that, that connection to your teachers, make sure that you're taking the chance to reach out and, and showing that, uh, that level of confidence to, to be able to say, in, the, in essence, the equivalent of putting your hand up, you know, in a classroom and saying, listen, 
I'm not sure I understand this. Can we try that differently? Or can we understand this a different way? Uh, but the other thing is, uh, it, it, sort of the second half of that advice would be in, at the older uh, grades, it's a little easier to do it on your own with our, you know, K through six, K through nine uh, students. So the parents going to have to be involved here. Uh, and that is helping socialize our kids to what it means to learn online and that it is going to be different. And, and in many cases, our kids are so used to technology. You know, as parents, we might actually, uh, you know, feel less confident than they might in terms of interacting with that technology. But it's about helping them set up and understand it is going to be different. It's, it's not going to be better or worse. It's just going to be different. And so we need to set each other up for success. And do you think this difference, this online learning is for everyone? Can everyone find joy and success in it? So, and, and those are two, you know, incredible questions. And I'm going to start with the concept because uh, I'm going to say a yes-ish uh, kind of answer. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is that online learning can be for everyone. It might not be for everyone right now or for their specific goals. And so it's about making sure that we are trying to maximize the overlap uh, of what the, the student's learning goal is with the, the medium that we have available. Um, and so, like I said, it, it's possible that online learning is for everyone. It's just it's, it is authentically a different experience. And so when you ask whether or not people can find joy, uh, you know, I, I also want to just comment that when we think about online learning, if it's designed specifically for an online learner, so you, you come at it from an online consumer perspective, it can be incredibly engaging, incredibly social, incredibly enriched um, in, in terms of its experience. Uh, and that, that's different than trying to take something that would normally happen in person and make the digital version of it, right? So, because you, you start to lose the, some of the effect of, of what would happen in person. And so when you ask, you know, can, can everyone find joy? Uh, I think everyone can find joy in online learning if it's designed specifically to meet their needs. Dr. Fasina, you said, you know, your institution, it specializes in distance learning. How do we make the experience then social? Help me understand that. Ah, okay. So, and, you know, as you said, we've, we've been in kind of the distance education realm for, uh, for 50 years, and, and we've been in the online education realm uh, since the mid-'90s. So this is, you know, we'll, we'll say that we're Canada's original online university. Uh, and, and part about that, that concept of making it social is, again, trying to introduce new ways or alternative ways of creating a social interaction that's not trying to replicate what would happen in person, but is still meeting the same style of an outcome. So it's about creating uh, discussion forums, uh, not only between instructor or teacher and student, but also among peers. Uh, and having some of those, if you will, what would happen in a, in a classroom conversations, just happening on a, on a discussion forum. Uh, alternatively, it's about bringing different technologies in uh, that, that many of us are familiar with and just engaging that platform as a learning tool. So, you know, as an example, many of us are, are familiar with the, with the world of Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter and being able to integrate those technologies into the learning environment to be able to create that social interaction through, through some of those channels as well. 
So it's it's really about being purposeful in, in creating that social interaction without having them have to sit next to each other. But as I was mentioning, ma- many of us are used to that now through some of the social media. It's just we tend not to think about those tools necessarily being teaching tools mm-hmm. when really they could be. All right, I think I know the answer to this next question, but I will go ahead and ask it anyway. Are you optimistic? Do you feel like the parents here in Ontario and the students that we will get through this? So I think in in very short, absolutely, I'm optimistic. Uh, it's not that I want to, uh, you know, be uh, trying to place a, a silver lining on what is authentically a very dark cloud. But when we think about this from an educational standpoint, this has truly opened the doors to us having conversations that that were inevitable for us to have anyways. And and really, I mean, whether or not it be in Ontario or across Canada, we have got school boards and higher education institutes tackling these questions with incredible passion because we have to quickly. And I think in the end, who's going to win is is our students. We are going to be able to create an enriching, high-quality, incredibly interactive experience for them to learn and to be able to pursue their educational goals regardless of whether or not they can do it in person or if they they have the opportunity to do it from a distance. And so I think, really, this has just accelerated us to an incredibly high-quality learning environment. Dr. Neil Fasina, President of Athabasca University, thank you for joining us on the feed. I truly appreciate your encouragement and especially your expertise. I can't uh, thank you enough for having me on. Coming up, the Canadian Armed Forces to the rescue and a 99-year-old World War II vet walking for a good cause. That's next on the feed on 105.9 The Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. The Canadian Armed Forces came to the rescue when long-term care homes were struggling and the people within their care were deathly ill or dying at the height of COVID-19. Brigadier General Conrad Malkowski led the charge. He joins us now with a look back at how the military's intervention changed everything for the better. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's a difficult topic, but we are well on the way to changing what had been so horrible for so many people through COVID-19. Brigadier General Malkowski, the military went into five long-term care homes at the request of the province. You had one objective in mind, but you emerged with something very different, and that was a long and detailed and very disturbing report about the conditions within those homes. How did that come about? Well, thank you, Anne, and and thank you for uh, having me on your show today. Um, As you mentioned, we were requested by the province of Ontario to provide assistance in in five homes. In total, we went to seven. And it really was because of the crisis that had emerged in long-term care facilities all across Ontario. The, you know, the... um, we started in those first five homes on the 28th of April, and 
as we are not really the force that's necessarily attuned to uh, elder care, geriatric care, the concerns uh, of, of folks uh, in long-term care, it, it was for us a bit of a challenge in, in tuning our healthcare providers who are normally focused on, on providing for relatively physically fit people who sustain trauma injuries on operations to be able to go into those who, who were um, residents of these homes. And throughout the course of uh, our initial weeks in the homes, um, we, we just saw a number of observations, and these observations were encapsulated in the report that you referred to, uh, which we provided mid-May. How did you come to that decision, though, that you were going to put this on paper, that you were going to put together a report that really was incredibly disturbing and very detailed, but needed to be written and read? So where did that decision come from? Well, and to be honest, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, essential to how we conduct uh, our business uh, in the military anyways uh, in making sure that our superiors are informed and up-to-date on what we are doing. Again, I would say that this was a very unique and unconventional uh, employment of the Canadian Armed Forces in terms of this, this health care provision. And we were not very familiar with the challenges in long-term care and all of those were, of course, accentuated by the COVID crisis. And we can't allow, I guess, short-term uh, memory to remind us that at the point that we went in at the end of April uh, and the effects that were occurring in Ontario at the beginning of May, like we were in crisis in Canada in our long-term care homes. And it wasn't just restricted to Ontario. We had a similar uh, impact and a similar response uh, in the province of Quebec. So the medical personnel and troops that went into the, the long-term care homes, you said eventually seven altogether, they began to understand what it was that they were needed to, for and needed to do. How did they respond to what they saw? So, I mean, I couldn't speak to individuals, Anne, but certainly we got a, a, a good impression within the first week that the challenges were... Uh, wide and varied, and they were different um, with each home because of the impact of the various infrastructure and ages of home, but also sizes of home and the degree of a COVID outbreak in each of those facilities. And uh, I would just underscore, it was a dire situation. Um, many of them had lost residents uh, to COVID. They had succumbed to it. As well, many of the staff themselves were under pressure. Uh, they had contracted COVID, so they weren't allowed to work. Uh, they were caring for their own families, and some of them were doing double duty, caring for families, and still making their shifts. Uh, we had incidents where typically there would be a number of nurses and scores of personal uh, support workers in each home, and they had been decimated by the, the outbreak uh, within the home, and so they were down to one and two for, like a one or two nurse for, for uh, over 100 patients. I mean, it's it's completely um, terrifying if you put it in that perspective. And that really shocked our folks who, uh, again, while they're conditioned uh, for a different type of medical service, uh, one under some very strenuous conditions, they were not expecting to see something uh, so shocking in terms of their ability to care for Canadians here at home. And, and again, it was, it was a crisis in our, in our country, and we were grateful that we were called to assist uh, but our assistance, I mean, we were just a very small part of an overall response uh, in Ontario. There, you know, there's 
well over 700 homes uh, in Ontario, and there were outbreaks uh, in a large number of them. The province had a priority list at that point of uh, well in excess of sort of 70, 80 homes, uh, and we were assigned to some, you know, the, the sort of homes that they thought were going to be able to recover quickly with our assistance. So the report, when it was released, it caused shockwaves right across the province and probably across Canada. Some of the detailed information in the report, poor infection control, suspected abuse of residents, residents being treated roughly, denied food or not being fed properly, and as you mentioned, staffing issues. Did you realize that this was going to create such a, a, a disturbing response uh, based on what people read in the report and what the government would read in the report? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Anne. And I think we, we all collectively, and, and by we, what I should refer to is the teams that were in each of those homes, um, all of them led by a senior nursing officer, so a medical professional, uh, staffed with uh, our medical technicians uh, who are kind of like a cross between uh, emergency medical technicians in, in sort of public health who respond to, um, you know, crises, uh, whatever they are, but also folks that can run a bit of uh, sort of ward service uh, and, uh, and clinical uh, uh, profession. Um, it, it, was, it was certainly, as they saw it and from their professional background, they, they believed that it, what right looked like was getting onto the problem, but making sure we documented the problem so that we wouldn't lose sight of where we were at this point in the crisis. And that was really the impetus. It, it was really less, um, Anne, about uh, trying to uh, sensationalize what was going on. It was more about us wanting to make sure that everyone knew what the situation was in the homes simply because we had the, the visibility in some of the most challenging conditions for our public health care workers. On a personal note, when I read the report, I wept, and I think that my response was uh, was echoed throughout the province. It was one of the the most uh, incredibly devastating uh, reports that I've ever read about how human beings are are being treated and the conditions that they're living in. So let's now talk about the impact of your report and what good has come from it, General. Well, I think perhaps uh, the first point to note was that. Uh, our presence helped, um, but it was a helping piece in turn around the conditions in those initial five and then for a total of seven homes for a whole number of homes that were also faced with the same type of challenges. But it allowed, uh, you know, the province in the middle of the darkest days of that crisis uh, to be able to, to help reorganize uh, on the basis of those people who were available and the resources, things like protective personal equipment, which was in a, in a nationwide and global shortage at that point, and also um, the things that we focused in on, uh, and particularly uh, infection prevention and control, or IPAC as, as they use in the medical world, was in order to just get our own uh, homes in order with the benefit of the staff that was in place, but of course much reduced from where they normally would be, was to get a grip on how the the virus was being transmitted and in caring for those folks who not only had long-term medical issues but also had this heightened vulnerability because they were suffering from COVID. 
Do you think your report made a difference? Are we now on a positive uh, track, do you believe, when it comes to long-term care homes? Uh, well, I'm not an expert in long-term care, uh, and so sort of my depth of understanding is about that uh, of, of an average Canadian who understands there are a lot of challenges, uh, many of them long-standing in terms of how our society views long-term care. And, and again, I, I am not qualified to, to comment on that. Um, but what I would say is that we certainly, uh, in partnership with the province here and with our teams in Quebec, in partnership with the province of, of Quebec, we're able to turn uh, or at least stem the tide uh, right at the point of the most vulnerable periods in those long-term care facilities. Uh, so I think in terms of how we contributed to that effort, that that was good, and the fact that we laid down a milestone as to what was occurring is good because it will allow, uh, you know, in a retrospective look at those events and potentially for preparation of anything we might see in the next several months or year, uh, what, what it is that we need to continue to prevent uh, and improve uh, for the situations of our residents in those long-term care facilities. You have a very storied uh, career so far in the military, and you've seen so much, including uh, the, on the, at the front in Afghanistan. Have you ever seen anything quite like this, what you see in your own backyard? Well, one of the things, Anne, that would, you know, shock, I guess, a Canadian would be to see this, uh, to see Canadians suffering uh, in our own country. I mean, that always uh, has an impact on anybody, uh, and like everybody, your listeners included, of course, uh, would empathize with that, with that point. It's, it is one thing to go somewhere in the world and expect to see something uh, in, in challenging situations, to see poverty, to see heartbreak, to see the results of, uh, of violence inflicted upon communities. Uh, and while none of that was what we saw here, of course, there was still heart, heartache, um, there was still heartbreak, uh, and we were losing Canadians in a very uh, stressful time. And again, um, you know, as we reflect on that period of time, as we, as we think about where we were at that point, we had no idea uh, where this um, disease was taking us. We were all collectively as Canadians doing everything we could to try and bring every action uh, to include, you know, closing down segments of our economy and society and community to prevent further outbreak. Um, we, we simply, you know, threw everything we could at, at the problem that we faced at that point in time. And uh, thank heavens we were able to, you know, bring uh, as much as we could together to be able to turn this around uh, and again, our piece of it was but a contribution of a much larger public health response uh, across Canada. Brigadier General Conrad Malkowski, thank you for your service. It has been an honor and a privilege. Well, thank you for, uh, for this interview. And, and again, I would reflect, um, it, we really need to continue to respect what our public health officials are telling us. Uh, we need to continue to support our healthcare workers the frontline healthcare workers and those folks that are looking after the most vulnerable in our community. Uh, we haven't defeated COVID and we still need to respect that this is a very dangerous and, and serious disease uh, which we need to overcome collectively as, as a community. Very wise words. Thank you, General. Thank you, Ed. Cheers.
Earlier this week, 99-year-old World War II veteran George Marco completed his 100K walk around his Newmarket Seniors residence, and 105.9 The Region was front and center for the big moment. Here he comes, George. Here he comes. He's coming in. Ten feet away from that finish line. He's tipping his hat to everybody, puts his hat on his heart, and he's made it, ladies and gentlemen. His daughter, Sylvia Perkins, joins us now on the feed to talk more about her father's incredible journey so far. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you very much for having me. So, how did you feel when you saw your father cross the finish line earlier this week? There are few words to describe the overwhelming pride I felt for him. I have goosebumps right now just thinking about it. At his age of 99, accomplishing such a remarkable feat um, was overwhelming for everyone there. And he had a little bit of a setback a few weeks ago. What happened? We were scheduled to have the final lap of his walk two weeks ago, and he took suddenly ill with a very high fever and was rushed to the hospital to discover that he had an infection that was easily cleared up with antibiotics. So he's back to his normal, wonderful self. And did he say to you, I want to keep walking? He most certainly did. He, <laughs> he wasn't prepared to quit, not when he was that close. And he plans to continue walking. Sylvia, why is your father so determined to give back? You know, he, in his early life as a World War II soldier, he experienced things that no no person should ever experience. He was a prisoner of war. He he. It was a very tough time for him. Life wasn't good to him in the early stages. Why did, does he want to give back? He is so thankful to Canada, to the people of Canada. When he moved here in 1950, this is where he made his life, his home, and raised his family. And this is his way of giving back and saying thank you to Canada. Oh, he's raising funds for COVID-19 research with two hospitals in mind. Why those two particular hospitals? Uh, the first one, South Lake Hospital, is his home hospital and our family's home hospital. So he is there on a regular basis. The second is Sunnybrook Hospital, and they saved his life because he had a brain bleed five years ago due to a car accident, and they literally saved his life at the age of 94, 95. He is thankful to those two hospitals. And he is now 99. Now, he wanted to cross the finish line before his 100th birthday. That is April 2021. So what's next for your father, the amazing George Marco? <laughs> <laughs> well, he plans to continue walking. He's hoping that donations will still continue to come in, and he will continue walking. So he has set his goal to 150 kilometers and maybe even 200 kilometers by his 100th birthday. How much money is he hoping to raise? His goal is to raise $100,000, but it is also being matched dollar for dollar by the Galt 
Family Foundation, and they will donate $100,000 in total if he can raise that much himself. How does your father respond to all of the accolades and the, the sincere joy that people are feeling about what he's doing and the way they're reaching out to him? <laughs> the only word he could say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm in a dream, and I don't ever want to wake up from it. <laughs> he was over the moon, filled with joy. Sylvia, where can people donate if they want to continue to fuel his fire? <laughs> they can donate to a GoFundMe account that I have set up. If they log in or go on Google to GoFundMe and type in 99-year-old walking for 100 kilometers, his name will come up, George Marco and they can donate right on that at that fund. Well, I'm sure he is your hero. He certainly is our hero here at 105.9 The Region. Thank you, Sylvia, and our very best to you and your incredible father. Thank you so much, Anne, and your remarkable team. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, everyone. After the break... I see you. Back to school. I care. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. So you have a long list of things to do before you send your student back to school. Things like shopping for school supplies, clothing, backpacks. But you should also include a visit to the eye doctor. Afwa Bob brings it all into focus. Eye care is essential, but sometimes it could be overlooked. But here to provide some key eye care tips for kids, of course, heading back to school and parents getting back into the rhythm of going back into work is optometrist Radhika Chavla. Radhika, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. First off, uh, tell me briefly about yourself and your work. Thank you. So um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, so my name is Dr. Radhika Chavla. I'm an optometrist. I, uh, I practice here in Richmond Hill. Um, I've been in practice for about 17 years, um, but in Richmond Hill since 2012. Um, currently, I'm serving as the vice president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. I often get asked, what do optometrists do? So I just thought I'd share um, that in Ontario, optometrists, optometrists are the primary eye care providers, and we detect, diagnose, treat, and prevent and co-manage eye-related issues. And we know that the eye care industry very vital, and we know, of course, that COVID-19 has impacted industries around the world. Can you talk about how the pandemic has affected optometrists? Similar to many other professions, uh, the impact of uh, COVID-19 on optometry has uh, been profound. Now, just a little history is optometry in Ontario was a challenge pre-COVID, but uh, we're finding it it's um, an unsustainable at this time with the physical distancing and disinfection protocols that we've been mandated to follow um, by the government and our College of Optometrists of Ontario we're only able to see half as many patients as we did before the 
pandemic. Um, so this is a change in how we practice. Um, also, we're incurring the additional costs, as many um, professions are, due to these uh, mandated protocols. So like a visit to the optometrist's office is a different experience as we put in detailed sanitization and disinfection procedures, and that's to make sure that we have uh, the highest uh, level of safety for our patients. So just as an example for our clinic, um, everyone who enters the clinic will have their temperature taken, they're asked to sanitize their hands, and they're also asked a COVID screening questionnaire. So you'll see staff and doctors, they're equipped with the appropriate PPE. At this time, though, our, our biggest concern is how this crisis will affect patient access um, to care. So at this point, OHIP doesn't uh, cover even half the cost of what it takes to deliver an eye exam. So we're, uh, the government, uh, we're asking them to work with us as optometrists um, to save eye care for tomorrow. And we have a campaign that's saveeyecare.ca that your listeners can look at. So, of course, we've seen how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected industries and no less we have seen how COVID-19 has impacted schools. And we know, of course, back to school happening within this month. And we know that a large component of the back to school plan is comprised of online learning this year. So as kids go back to school, do you have any eye care tips for kids who will be looking at the computer and at their computer screens basically for an extended amount of time? For sure, this is actually a question um, with, as you mentioned, with back to school that I'm having with parents and with their their children uh, in the exam room as well. So, I mean, we know this seems to be an era of technology where it's quite hard to even imagine any task that doesn't use technology to make it easier. Um, And also, children are being exposed to devices at, at younger and younger ages. But as you mentioned, you know, specifically over these past few months, we know there's been a definite increase in screen time with learning being online and children having being home and going back to online learning. So, again, the, uh, the first step I would recommend is ensuring a child has healthy eyes, and that begins with a comprehensive eye exam. We know that 80% of a child's learning is uh, based on vision. So our, our first eye exam that we recommend is at six months of age. Um, I'm often asked if a child's eyes can be examined at such an early age. And, yes, an optometrist uh, can ensure uh, your infant's eyes are reaching all the visual developmental milestones. After that, we suggest an eye exam again at two to three years old and every year thereafter. So for children who are um, in the school age years, Vision problems can affect learning and development and therefore then prevent children from reaching their uh, potential. Um, the statistic we know is that one in four school-aged children um, have a vision problem and the majority of the problems are not easy to detect symptoms and they may not actually share that they're having any issues. In terms of the school year and going back to uh, online learning, there are some recommendations that I, I give to both children as well as adults. So one of the tips that we recommend we call it the 2020 rule, 2020 rule. So here we're advising a break that should be taken every 20 minutes to look 20 feet away for 20 seconds. It helps to uh, alleviate eye strain. And for children, I often um, recommend them just to get up and get moving around. And for adults, I'll just ask them to simply lift their eyes from their screen. Something else is that we just, we need to remember to blink. Um, on average, we blink 12 uh, times per minute. But when we're in front of a screen and we're concentrating on this, will tend to, the blink rate will tend to reduce, and that can sometimes lead to dry eyes. So I'm also recommending to parents as well as adults to uh, remember to blink. 
something else that's uh, recommended, proper lighting and, and posture is important. So we would discourage, for example, playing video games in a dark room because when the room is dark, contrast between the screen and the surrounding area is, is quite great, and then that can often lead to um, un, uncomfortable vision. There are other recommendations that optometrists can make, um, but they're often specific to each individual because we'll have a unique health history and everyone has different visual needs and requirements. But there's recommendations that we can make for specific lens designs, lens powers, lens tints, coating for eyeglasses, for those with glasses, and even for those that don't wear glasses to alleviate I wanted to ask, what are maybe some of the things that should be a red flag to be like, okay, I have to go see an optometrist? Maybe one could be, you know, they've been staring at the screen for a long amount of time. It could be kids or parents. And then they start seeing maybe like blurry vision, but they might attest that to, oh, I've been looking at the screen for too long. Maybe what's Mm -hmm. a red flag that they should be like, you know what, I need to see an eye doctor about this. That's actually a really good question. And with children, at least, often that's, that's the interesting part is that sometimes they won't even know uh, that what they're seeing is different than what, what you're, you or I are seeing because this is how they may have always seen. So they may not actually um, complain of any condition, uh, of any issues because this is what is normal to them, which is why we do recommend uh, annual eye exams. But some common symptoms that uh, I hear as well, my child may be squinting, uh, blinking, um, rubbing their eyes, they may be turning their head, they may be avoiding near work, uh, meaning reading um, or, or things that are up close. Sometimes parents will tell me also that um, their children may be getting um, close to the screen, so they're changing their position um, may, that may be due to not being able to see the screen clearly. So there are many different symptoms that um, we look for, but again, sometimes children won't complain. <laughs> Uh, any tips in general, in terms of general eye care? I know that we've heard good night's sleep and also avoiding bright lights for a long time. Yeah, again, I would say a, a comprehensive eye exam is the first step for caring for one's eyes and vision and, and overall health. Um, we also recommend a healthy diet, so we're ensuring that we include nutrients that uh, help to maintain healthier eyes, decrease the risk for eye disease. Again, um, the optometrist will be able to make specific recommendations. Also, talking a lot with my uh, patients about taking breaks through the day, uh, getting some exercise, moving around. These are all little tips that we discuss during the exam as well. Perfect. Okay. And then if somebody doesn't have an eye doctor and they're sort of unsure of where to go and how to start, um, where can maybe residents go for more info? And how does one maybe even go about trying to now find their perfect eye doctor? Okay. Um, So to find a local optometrist, your uh, residents can visit the Ontario Association of Optometrists website. And we have a tool on that website that's called Find a Doctor, and that will help you find an optometrist which is within your area. So that would be the easiest way. Optometrist uh, Radhika Chavla, thank you so much for your time today and, of course, giving me some great eye care tips for not only kids but parents, uh, much-needed tips. Our eyes are an important part of our body and need just as much attention. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.